Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now, you know that on this program we cover an awful lot of books, which means that I read a lot of books. Uh, I have to say that the subject of our interview today is a book which I think is probably one of the most thought-provoking I've read in years, actually. Feminism Against Progress is by Mary Harrington, who's my guest today. Uh, she is writer and journalist and associate editor at Unheard. Um, Mary, Feminism Against Progress, um, I was reading some of the reviews as well, and Suzanne Moore said that you take aim at most of the sacred cows of feminism. But um, does this mean that you have been cancelled yet or not? <laughs> I was expecting to have been more cancelled than I have been. I mean, it's, it's only been a week since the book came out, so there's plenty of time. Yeah. And it could just be that the people who really hate me already hated me, so they're just not going to read it. Yeah. Or it could be that they just haven't read it yet, or, or, and they're, they're still putting together the rap sheet. I right. don't know. Or it could just be that I haven't actually said anything nearly as provocative as I, I could have done. But it, it hasn't happened yet. There's always time, though. Can I ask, I mean, first of all, uh, you know, to define our terms, feminism against progress, feminism and progress, what are you defining as feminism? I mean, in the book, sorry, I just, you know, I'm going to answer for you a bit. Uh, you do talk about a kind of battle between two forms of feminism, one of feminism of care and feminism of liberty. I don't know whether that helps at all in the definition, but... It does. I mean, the book itself came out of a very long-term argument I had with myself. Um, over whether or not it's even possible to be a feminist if you don't believe in progress. Because I arrived in adulthood believing both in the importance of feminism and the value of feminism. And I got, by the time I'd exited my 20s, I no longer believed in progress. However, I found I still cared about women's interests. And, and yet, um, it was, I, found, I, I found myself wrestling with the question of whether it's possible to unpick caring about caring about women's interests you know as a sex yeah. uh, which I, I do believe are often undervalued and often sidelined in in a number of different ways and whether it's possible to unpick that project and that worldview from the idea of progress or the, the progressive project more generally yeah. and it because it's often just taken as read that if you've signed up to feminism then you must be on board with all of the other isms as well right. you must be on board well you you, you know you know the ones yeah. you, the, there's a whole and there's, there's a new one every week yeah. and you're expected to sign up to all of them and if you don't then you'll be cancelled so the feminism broadly speaking that you're referring to in the title is what you might call the feminism of freedom would that be right? yes i think that's that's probably Could you explain what that means so the to cut a long a lo very long story and a very long journey as short as possible. Um, I, as I wrestled with this question, I, I wrestled with it while I while I was a new mother to a to a young baby, and while I, I wasn't working, I was a stay-at-home mum for a while, and I tried to make sense during that time of what I was doing and how it felt to be doing what I was doing as a stay-at-home mum, compared to what the feminist, what the received story of feminism had always told me I should be thinking and feeling about that. I'd always taken it as read that to be a stay-at-home mum was to be substandard, was to be oppressed. You know, that I was I was a I was in in hock to the patriarchy, and I was I was that, that there was something bad and negative about doing what I was doing. But as it as it turned out, 
when I got to the point where I, I had to choose whether to go back to work or not after my daughter was born, it turned out that actually having a choice at all about whether or not I went back to work wasn't, it wasn't a fact, it wasn't a, it didn't feel oppressive so much as an extraordinary privilege to even have the choice to stay home because most women now are not in that position and whether or not they might want to, to, to take a step back from work to care for their children. More, more often, you know, the more women than not find themselves economically in a position where they just can't. Um, and and it, it became clear to me that there's a great deal more ambivalence in there for a great deal, um, um, a great many more women than you would think if you only listened to the very ambitious, very successful career women who generally have the mic on this and who generally set the policy as well because they're in a position to have access to the You mean power. sort of elite? Yes, um, elite women who love their work and who, mm. for whom it's genuinely a much tougher choice to, mm. to trade monkey music and milksick for whatever it was that they were doing before, which they worked very hard at and found rewarding in its you know, whether financially or personally or both. And so, and as I tried to make sense of all of this, I, because I'm, because I'm bookish and I, that's just, that's just how I am. It, it sent me down a whole long, ex lengthy rabbit hole of the history of feminism and how we got to the point we got to. Because I, I was thinking, why, why is it that care? Why is it, why, why, do, why does this take, why does this play second fiddle at all? How did we get to the point where, where care and dependent children how did we get to a point where it's considered infradig to be a mum? Mm. Really, that's the question I was trying to answer because I was thinking it doesn't feel infradig. It doesn't feel unimportant what I'm doing. It doesn't. It feels immensely important. I can't think of anything I'd rather be doing. I mean, it didn't help that I was I, 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 I was relatively unusual for a graduate middle class woman to have got all the way into my thirties, having been rubbish at everything I'd ever tried my hand at professionally. <laughs> so I genuinely couldn't think of anything I'd rather be doing professionally yeah. speaking rather than you know the, to warrant that that was that was appealing yeah. enough to warrant spending time away from my baby and i and i genuinely think for a lot of a lot of women of my of a similar background to me that's it's a much more difficult choice but anyway that's where i was um and those so those were the questions i was you know pushing a buggy around the empty streets yeah. of a small town in the shires trying to make sense of all of this and feminism against progress is the result of those ruminations in the course of which i came i came to think that the the feminism of care and the feminism of freedom are really the twin poles of an argument, a very substantial and important argument, which took place over two or three hundred years in over the course of modernity with the Industrial Revolution. Um, and during which women's lives were transformed, obviously, because work left the home and was something that happened elsewhere, which, cre which created a whole new set of dilemmas in terms of how people managed the care of children and really how, how men and women divided the work of, of living, and the work of family life between them. So from that, you, so I take from that that women, quite literally, being at home, uh, working, being able to work, uh, at the same time could take care of kids, couldn't they? Yes. It's, it's commonly, I mean, a, a, a sort of common trope of the, the story of progress, with a capital P, the pro, what I call progress theology in the book. This, this account of, that, that says, you know, why, why would you not believe in progress? Because progress obviously gave you women's rights, so how could you possibly have any complaints about it? And one of, and one of the major pillars of that is, is this idea that women entered the workplace for the first time in whether you, you know, from, from the beginning of the 20th century onwards. Yes. And it's just not true. In fact, women entered the modern age. You know, women have always worked, and this idea of a traditional housewife who's not economic, economically active, quote unquote, and who just sits at home um, 
you know, looking after babies and and doing doing all of those things. That's that. It's actually a peculiarly modern idea. Um, and prior to the modern age, every all women, with the exception of the very, 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 very wealthy, all worked, because in most cases, um, work economic life was took place within the home in a sort of cottage industry. You know, whether you were processing raw materials in an agrarian context for, for use by the family or we weaving. contribute weaving in textile making has been women's has been the work mm. has been work done by women for 40, you know, thousands of tens of thousands of years um, really until until the beginning of the industrial era where it became something that was done in factories and it was no longer practical to do it with small children underfoot mm. um, and, and, and actually I've taken that in the book as a paradigmatic instance of how industrialization transformed women's lives because textile making for tens of thousands of years had been work that was done by women it, because it was and and there I've quoted an historian who theorizes that it was it's been women's work because it's it's relatively easy to interrupt you know you can put the shuttle down and stop yes stop your toddler jumping into the fire or whatever <laughs> um, um, it's you can you can hang a loom off the ground so it's you can keep it out of harm's way I mean, it's social um, so it can be done it's not it's not lonely work you can you can chat to other people while you're doing it um, and it's just, and, and it's essential to to the economic and social, and you know, to, to the to the life of the family. Um, so, and you know, it's it's economic activity, in, in certainly in in terms as we'd understand it today. Um, so, so that's just one instance. But of course, when industrialization happened, textile making suddenly required large, expensive machinery, which 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 was centralized in plants, which could mm -hmm. potentially be you know tens of miles away from your home. You know they were dangerous, so you couldn't have children running underfoot anymore. They took you, they took you away from home for long periods of time. And of course, there were there were working class women who who just had to put up with it, mm -hmm. and had to find ways of had to find somebody else to watch their babies, or as you know, as Marx reports, you know, sometimes would drug their babies for, for for the day to just try and keep them out of harm's way while they while they went to work because that was the only option available to make ends meet. But, but really, I think the, the, the picture I'm trying to paint is of the, just how radical a transformation the industrial era was in family life. And it threw up a whole load of new questions for men and women about how, how to divide the basic tasks of living. Yes. You see, I don't, I don't quite know what your view will be on this. Uh, because now feminism, as I think we've alluded to, sort of has become a preoccupation or that kind of feminism. Of, a, of a, a relatively privileged class of women. Mm -hmm. um, if I think of my own mum, right, working class woman, um, and she was devoted to her family, she would, have, she would have said that that was what she was, a mother and wife. But she also worked. Mm -hmm. you know, she went and did unskilled, I mean, she worked in shops. But it seems to me that women did that. Then, yep. And yep. Be, they wouldn't have called themselves feminists as such, would they? It was just a necessity. Yes, um, I mean the the vast majority of this is a distinction I, I draw quite often. Uh, it's the, the the story about emancipation into the workplace tends to be told by more bourgeois, yeah. uh, the bourgeois women of the kind who might have high flying careers. Yeah. Um, but the vast majority of people, really of both sexes, don't have careers; they have jobs. Yeah. And the policies which tend to be enacted in the name of feminism tend to be geared towards women with careers rather than women with jobs and simply and perhaps just because of the blind spot or perhaps because of um, 
having taking less of an interest in how things play out up and down the social scale you know what often happens is that those are those 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 interests of you know the kind of people who might have careers are presented as though they're it, they, they those are the interests of all women yeah. when in fact it's it those are the interests really of a minority of, of relatively upper class women now this is this is a point which gets made from the left on a regular basis mm. you know there there there's no shortage of no shortage of left wing feminists who will point out that the, the the sort of the, the history of liberal feminism for a great for a, for a great many years was straightforwardly the history of white upper class women in the mm. developed world, mm. and and my one of my arguments in the book is that that remains the case even today, in in those those feminist uh, quote unquote feminist policies which are seeking which are now pursuing the abolition of biological sex mm. in law, which to my eye is a project which which potentially still benefits elite women or or at least or at least reduces the risk of their being discriminated against in contexts where actually there's no need for any sex discrimination but has a, has a number of negative repercussions further down the social scale yeah. for example among incarcerated women you know, where, where biological sex is it's, gro it's obviously grossly unjust yeah. to abolish biological sex do you think that uh, you mentioned this is like over the past 200 years it seems that somehow uh, the what you're saying in the book is unless I'm completely misunderstanding, is that you know the general story about the progress of women and women's rights um, is slightly mistaken in the sense that it's actually much more rooted in changes that happen technologically, industrially, and in particular, you know, uh, we're, we're getting to a stage now where it's about medication and whatever, and you actually do highlight uh, the period of what's known as the sort of sexual liberation mm. period and and the pill. Mm -hmm. Do you think that basically the arrival of the pill and for that matter sexual liberation for want of a better expression, did that actually really help women? Well, it, it, again, it really depends where you're standing. In the case of the pill, it's, <laughs> it, I think I, what I would say is that a great many women enjoyed a dividend of freedom and opportunity as a consequence of that innovation. And that's beyond dispute. You know, it was possible for, if you were ambitious and academic, it was possible to plan your early 20s. You could, you could go off to university without having to either take a vow of absolute chastity or, um, or, or, or run the risk of, of having to drop out at any point because you were having a baby. And 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 so it's so it's no coincidence really that the the arrival of the contraceptive pill was also it, that was also the point where women started going to started studying at at university in in, in ever greater numbers. It's also not a coincidence that was also the point where women entered the workplace um, in ever greater numbers because it was possible to plan because you because women could suddenly control their fertility. So for those women who were ambitious and those or bookish or did not particularly interested in children. Yes, there was a, there was an enormous dividend of freedom. I think the picture is a little bit more complicated where sexual freedom is concerned. My great friend Louise Perry has made, I, I think, very convincingly the case against the sexual revolution. That's the title of her book, where she argues that the the idea that men and women are interchangeable and they have they they have the same desires and the same proclivities where sex is concerned is is false. Um, and, and she, she makes the argument from evolutionary biology that this is just false. Mm. It's fundamentally not borne out by anything. Mm. 
and and that what 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 the pill has normalized is a male stand a sort of male default um set of social norms around how we behave sexually which is net negative for a great many women yeah so i would and, and i broadly agree with louise's analysis on that however um it's it's a very mixed picture and i think it's uh, again very heavily inflected by class and i would say that at the top of the social scale on balance it's the pill has probably brought more benefits than downsides further down the social scale i think you could i think you could argue that it's been the other way around it's can you in, how well <coughs> it's, it, this is this is immensely it's a tremendously complicated area because and it's and i'm sure there would be people who would who would look at the the the, the research and the facts that i'm citing and say well have you considered x y and z but for for example um there was a there's a very famous study that was done i'm just jumping to the united states from england here for a moment there's a famous study done by janet yellen and a few others about 20 years ago where they looked at um, okay I'll, I'll have to do this in two stages so so one of the unexpected effects that the contraceptive pill had in the 1960s was it, it, the cam the campaigners who advocated for its legalization believed that the the result would be fewer un un unplanned pregnancies which would you would think be obviously a good thing um, and it was and they they received assent for the legalization of the contraceptive pill even for women who were not married on the basis that it would help it would help reduce the number of unfortunate unplanned pregnancies which are obviously a difficult a difficult quandary for you know much much more you know well beyond the individual who's in that position you know there's a however it didn't have that effect because what happened downstream of legalizing the contraceptive pill was that although the although the number of unplanned pregnancies per per encounter went down the number of the number of casual encounters went through the roof so okay. let, let, yeah, yeah. and so the absolute number of unplanned pregnancies went up um, when, and what people hadn't banked on was that was that the the arrival of this technology would so completely change social mores so quickly that it, it would completely change the field that we were that people were people were operating in and so then, and, and so then, it created a ratchet towards legalized legal abortion, and that, in turn, and the the, the studies bear this out. The the and the and and after that was legalized, uh, after abortion became possible and became socially, at least, after the abortion was legalized, the number of the, there's a there's a very this famous study that was done by Janet Yellen and others shows that it the the, the number of shotgun weddings, just shotgun weddings, almost disappeared overnight. So whereas at, at you know, I've, I've got, I'm, I know people of my age and a little bit older who are the product of marriages which began as shotgun weddings, <laughs> you know, in the, as, as, it, as was then relatively normal, and, you know, which went on to be long, happy marriages. Um, but this, this was something which was relatively normal in the, in the mid-20th century. You know, there's, you didn't, people didn't necessarily entirely all, all wait. And you know there were some there were a great many wedding photos where she's standing behind the cake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but this 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 pretty much um, didn't yeah. it didn't stop happening overnight. But the numbers went through the floor because the the moment it became a woman's choice, it also became a woman's responsibility. Mm. And and as a consequence, um, the the effect of these technological changes counterintuitively wasn't a reduction in the number of of lone lone mothers. It was a, it was an increase. Because it became because uh, yeah. it 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 reduced the the expectation yes. that a man was responsible as well as a woman for the for the result yeah. of 
yeah. it's so it's so completely changed the territory that it had these extremely counterintuitive effects. It's interesting because uh, the way that you d describe the, the pill um, and ongoing right up to the present day, it's it's a kind of um, a process of well, on the one hand, commodification. Right? You know, that basically the meaning has been taken out of many things and it's just left us as these things, right? So therefore, um, please tell me if I, if I misunderstand, but is that you, you go from the pill to that sort of taken away, that, um, that immediate sort of like re reproductive uh, aspect of, of sex. It's made it much more just a thing you do. Um, and then you come right up to the present where in fact you can almost choose, at least theoretically choose what you, what you want to have on your you know, it, what you want your body to look like, mm. or you can just choose. It's sort of, all meaning seems to have been taken away. It's almost like there's been a kind of war on what one would have once called human nature. Is, mm -hmm. is, is, would you, is, yes. is that a simplistic that I'd say that's a fair characterization. I mean, yes, I've drawn a straight line yeah. from the contraceptive pill to the idea that we can remodel our bodies as we see fit, because to me, they, are, they exist on a continuum. I've, I've elsewhere not I haven't spelled it out in the book but subsequently I've made the point that to me the pill is the first transhumanist technology right. it's the it's the entry transhumanist, transhumanist. Uh, but by by transhumanism I mean this is something that we've seen much more in in discussion recently but very simply it's a belief it, that's, that's increasingly well-funded and increasingly prevalent especially among the Silicon Valley set that it's we we can and should use technology to upgrade what people are to theoretically limitless th theoretically limitlessly into the future you know if we want to up if we if we find ways to upload ourselves into the cloud and exist yeah indefinitely yeah. then we can and should yeah. if we want to if it turns out that we can genetically engineer people to make them couldn't assume super intelligent then we can and we should except you know is this about this human perfection do you think or not using thing, using tech any any and all technologies yeah. to to make humans better on any metric that you mm. care to name as we mm. put it so so to my eye the pill is the point where we enter where that becomes politically possible because that was the point where it, it, it was a fundamentally different way of using medical technology mm. in that what it did what the pill does is not cure something which is wrong with me so you know, I might take I'm, I, I might take a medication that that gets rid of an ailment that I have, or some or a doctor sets my broken bone. You know, this is a restorative form of medicine, which is fixing something. Which and underpinning this restorative paradigm for medicine is this idea that there's that there is a normal, healthy physiology that we're that we're aiming to return to. You know, if my my arm isn't working properly, you know what properly looks like in order to be able to fix it. But what the pill does, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't fix something that's wrong with me. It fixes something that's right with me in order, in order better to serve my desires. And, there's some, and that's a fundamentally different understanding of what medicine does and what it should be used for. It's, essentially, it's, it's, it's interrupting normal healthy, normal, healthy human functioning in the, in the interest of freedom. Mm. And, from, and once you accept that that's an, an, an acceptable way to use medicine, you know, you only you only really need to extend that to think. Well, why shouldn't I use technologies to interrupt other mm. aspects of what constitutes normal, healthy human functioning? So, well, why why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I remodel my body so that it has it has breasts and a vagina rather than rather than the, the 
physical parts that I was born with? Why shouldn't I upload myself into the cloud? Why shouldn't I splice myself or somebody? Why shouldn't I, you know, graft tentacles onto myself? You know, there's. It's just. Might, it's, it's difficult to see any reason yeah. not to. There's no robust argument left. It's um, I mean, it's quite horrifying picture to to me. You know, that, that that's neither neither here nor there. Oh, I think because I was watching some interviews you've done, and um, I think you alluded in one point that. You know that there is sort of, therefore, there will be many women around the world who will almost be like just, you know, spare parts merchants. I mean, mm -hmm. the, you know, this already is sort of happening with surrogacy, is it not? I, to my eye, yes. I think this is, yes, it, it, this is a point I make in the book in Feminism Against Progress. This, this idea that we can emancipate ourselves from our bodies um, immediately to me because uh, as an old lefty, I don't know if I would, and plenty of people who wouldn't call me a lefty now, but I've, I've always, I've always, as an old lefty, my question is, well, who's we here mm. who gets to emancipate ourselves from our bodies? Mm. You know, as I was talking before about how the, the impact of the pill and subsequently of abortion has been very different depending on where you sit in the class hierarchy. So mo it's mostly upside if you're, if you have plenty of social and cultural capital and high time preference, mm. and, and perhaps not so much if you're at the other end of the scale. Um, you know, if you're if you're able to enjoy sexual freedom and then you go off and find a lovely, lo lo a loving, stable relationship, as is now typically much more the case in the among the upper classes, then great. You know, you get the best of both worlds. But if if you're forced into prostitution because you're because you've been trafficked, and and it's possible to keep you doing that because contraception prevents you getting pregnant, it's a, that's a whole different ballgame. And if people are then just justifying the sex industry, which is exploiting you on libertarian terms which are only really possible because sex is conceived of now as a sort of fun leisure activity, then really the, the, the same freedom is playing out very differently where you are on the, depending on where yes. you are in the, in the class hierarchy. And, I th and once you map that onto this idea that we can remodel our bodies as we see fit, it becomes a whole lot more body horror. It becomes a whole lot more disturbing because really at the, at the top end of this wildly asymmetric politics, um, if, if you're at the buying, if you're at the buying end, and the the end which, which is a net beneficiary i've used the example of grimes who is a singer in in the united states who has two children two i believe children with elon musk who's now the richest man on earth um and who had her second child via surrogacy because she she had a she had a dangerous and frightening pregnancy and didn't want to go through it again but she wanted to be a mother again so she subcontracted gestation to somebody else and now that's that's you can do that if you have, if you're Elon Musk's mm, baby mama, mm, mm. because you can you can buy pretty much anything you want if you're Elon Musk's baby mm. mama. Um, it's less clear to me that this is obviously in the interests of the women who are renting their uteruses, mm. um, because it's it's very it's not at all obvious to me that that's something you would do if you had other career options. Mm. And the um, and I think if you're if we're talking about turning people from people into product and workplace and sometimes even just raw material then we need to think very seriously about what the what the costs you know no, to stop seeing it from the paradigm of the people from yeah. the perspective of the people who might be buying um, who are the who are also the ones let's let's remember who set the policy and they're also the ones who generally have the might yeah. and we need to be thinking about this much more concretely from the perspective of the people who are selling you see you say as an old lefty you mentioned there right um, to me, this doesn't really seem like a left-right thing. Oh, you know, on the on the face of it, you could say, "Oh, well, you know, against progress, women have you know uh, 
arrived at a, an unhappy place. Um, you know, we're anti-progress. Not really. I mean, when you describe it in the way that you are, it it does does rather like the the the, the, the trans argument actually at the, mo at, the, at, the, at the moment. I mean, this this week, for example, uh, it's been International Women's Day, and uh, there have been a couple of instances. I think you tweeted about one um, where basically biological men have have been given all sorts of kind of award, mm. an award, International Woman of Courage, and it's, it's a biological man. Um, but the elite women around them seem to have no problem with that. Yep. Well, I, this is one of the things, yes. actually, most, sorry. It, you know, I've had arguments with, with, with uh, female friends of mine. I said, why is it that so many women, you know, whether they are, you know, political uh, figures in America or wherever, seem to be, you know, helping this along? And consistently, the group who is most supportive of abolishing biological sex in law is educated, edu educated middle-class women, middle and upper-class women. And a number of people have asked me this question. So, I, so my my theory on this is is really that it, it, it remains if you're if you're a knowledge-class woman, which is to say your work happens at a laptop, um, it's broadly in your interests there to be no legal recognition that sex is a thing. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, if you, I, I was, I was very politely taken to task in my Twitter, de Twitter messages the other day by a barrister who said, "Now, excuse me, not all barristers think the same about this." But I took, I took <coughs> as one example of a, of a knowledge class profession barrister. I mean, you could take journalist as well. Mm. What I do for a living. There's no reason on earth why I or why I should be any more or less competent as a journalist by virtue of my sex. Because at the end of the day, the, the work involves thinking and reading and typing, and that's this is there's no physical component to that really. It's it's all cognitive, almost all cognitive. Um, <laughs> some people who don't like journalists might take issue with cognitive, <laughs> but we'll, we'll leave that for now. Um, but we all love you, 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 under, you understand <laughs> the point. You, you you understand what I'm saying. You know, there are, and there are lots of jobs like that where it really doesn't make very much difference at all what sex you are. Um, and for women in those jobs. Um, it's not comfortable at all for, for, for anybody to suggest that there might be situations where sex does matter. You know, say, for example, there are different workplace regulations for men and for women. Now, I can see, you know, were I a barrister or an accountant or you know, any, one of, any one of these other professions, I might, I might see that as a threat because it entrenches in law and policy this idea that I should be treated differently because of my sex, when obviously, depending, you know, my professional performance is in no way affected by my and so, from that point of view, and from my in terms of my class interests, um, which I'm very happy to universalize as everybody's interests, um, it, it it clearly seems as though women's women women's interests are best served by by obliterating sex altogether. And it's a logical continuation of that that if we're not going to discriminate against people on the basis of their sex, we shouldn't discriminate against women who aren't in fact female, because you know what just because sex we we should we should act in all instances though sex doesn't in fact matter. Yeah. So I can see how the logical, the logical end point of a completely sex agnostic um, understanding of what, what constitutes women's interests, as in ab abolishing sex altogether is the, is the right, is the, is the way forward mm. for feminism and for progress, mm. then it, you find yourself in a position where you can't really argue, you can't really exclude um, women who are not in fact female. Right. Because uh, because that's just sex discrimination, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
so you know you, you, and 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 that that condenses down to the the mantra you see quite a lot on twitter and places like that that says my feminism will include trans women or or it isn't feminism and yeah. that that's the that's the thought terminating cliche for liberal feminism now and and from that and 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 it encapsulates that that basic set of um, class and economic interests if if that is something that the idea of that you know the abolition of sex abolition of sexual identity in that way human nature one could say um, if one doesn't want to go along with that uh, you do make certain suggestions in that where we where we might go I mean broadly I, what, what I found interesting is you I think you called it um, you've got to get rid of big romance big romance that? big romance so I from that you're meaning the reasons that people get married now yes so I've 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 suggested three, three approaches, which, and I've really focused in the book on the personal level. Yeah. You know, there's a whole other book I could have written about what we might potentially do at um, at scale, um, but which I didn't write because it, it would. That's another sort of three or four volumes. Well, you've got a, um, a, a bit yes, of the end saying ghost a little, books. A little afterward. You, yeah, yes. About the you know, the book about yeah. ecological collapse and the book about the book the book about you know policy yeah. approaches to reactionary feminism. And all, all the other books, and the, and the book about the end of print culture, now they're, they're the ones I didn't write. Maybe I will another day. But in, in, at the end of this book, I thought, well, you know, if we're going to start somewhere, then if we're going to, lead, if we're going to make a female-led pushback against this idea that we're all just dematerialized selves piloting meat suits that we can remodel as we see fit, then actually, if, if there's going to be pushback against this at all, it has to begin with, it has to start with women. Because really, the entry into the transhumanist era began with women, and if we're going to, and I've, I've borrowed, I've borrowed the metaphor of detransition mm. to suggest how we might, how we might take a step back from this very extreme trajectory, which I, I see us as being on at present, into this belief that we can dematerialize ourselves, which I don't think is actually achievable, or at least, if it, even if it is attainable, it'll be attainable for a microscopic few, mm. and it will immiserate the vast majority of us. It will exploit and abuse and mutilate. And leave leave people chronically dissociated and still fundamentally unsatisfied because in, they've they've tried to reach a state of fulfilment by denying most of what we are, which is embodied, yeah. and animal and the, this phenomenal mixture of, of of flesh and and thought, which is what what is what it is to be a person. And and if we're going to take if we're going to step back from that, I've borrowed the metaphor of detransition, which is something. And yeah, I don't. I don't want to objectify the people who've gone through this and endured, you know, these, these, this movement into body dissociation, such that they've tried to remodel themselves and then, and then step back from that. Because I, I mean, it's a, it's a, there's a huge amount of suffering there. But I, I also, I really admire the people who have the courage mm. to step back and say, no, I've made these changes, and these are, and some of them are very public about it, and they say, look, this is, this is what I did to myself. And this is what the medical industry did to me, and some of these things are irreversible, and I have to live with them now. And they're they're wearing they're wearing the the scars and the 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 gap between the sort of Promethean fantasy and the fleshy reality. You know, that's who they are now. And there's something there's something very powerful and very courageous about being willing to to stand up and to to inhabit. But but to my eye, um, really most women. Are in a position now where we have to detransition and find a way back from the tech 
the sort of tech-enabled fantasy of total freedom from the, gimmick, the, the, the givens of our bodies. And really, most of us, most people, are in a are, are, are at a point now where we need to find a way, find a way back a little bit more into our embodied selves. You know, most of us spend far too much time you know, staring at the little screen. You know, I'm, I'm the worst offender there. I'm permanently plugged into the rage machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this is this is a, this is something I wrestle with every day: is mm. how to remain present, how mm. to remain grounded. You know, th this isn't just about um, trans, you know, body body modifications. This is about as a state, a sort of permanent state of um, dissociation from the, the 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 here and now. That really, the more of us than not are, are just in without really thinking about it. Mm. And if we're going to step back from that, it has to start, I think, with women, because the because that was where. And so I've, I've proposed, as one of the approaches we might take, uh, rejecting the pill. I don't think, it, I don't think it, it, it's simply not workable to say for, 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 some, for, for somebody to, to, to pronounce from on high that the pill is going to be banned, because it's just not. You know, the, only, the only way the pill is ever going to become less of a feature in our, in our social and cultural lives is if, is if the young pretty women mutiny against it. And actually, that's already happening. The young, the, the twenty-something, there's a there's a growing movement in hundreds, thousands, millions of, of very young women who who were who routinely put on the pill at the age of fourteen or fifteen, who are now coming off it in their twenties and speaking up and saying, well, "What did you do to me?" This is what what did they do? I mean, well, it's the, there have been there have been books written about this. I, think, I, I wish I could remember the title. There's a, a great book that came out a couple of years ago, "Your Brain on the Pill." Which, which goes into detail on the, the neurochemical change. Mm. It's a hugely psychoactive substance. I mean, I took it for a couple of years in my late teens, and, and I found it, 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 it had all kinds of subtle but very pervasively unpleasant effects and such that I just never wanted to use it again. And I, I thought I was maybe an anomaly in that way, but as it t I've, I've compared notes with pretty much every other woman I have, I've ever met who's, who's tried it, and they all, they've, all, they've all said the same. You know, it, it, it changes, it affects your mood, it made me fat, it made me, it, uh, I lost my libido, I was low-key crazy. Um, it's just, it just affects everything. Yeah. And you think these girls are being put on this, you know, basically to, so that they can be sexually available without, without have any downstream consequences of that, from maybe sort of 12 or 14, just as a matter of absolute routine. And so, you know, they have, and so, so it's completely normalized for them to have, you know, pretty loveless and often very degrading sexual encounters as a consequence of this. And they, they, they come off it and 10 years later, you know, having had all manner of, you know, possibly not very pleasant encounters and think, what was that for? Yes. yes. What was that even for? So I, so my, my argument is it's a, it's a pro-intimacy, a pro-women, pro-pleasure argument for, for just saying no. And we, what, about, what about marriage? And marriage? <coughs> yes. My, I mean, there's, I, I won't, I won't go, I won't bore you with the, the historical arguments for how we got to a point where, where marriage has come to see, relationships really at all, but marriage in particular has come to be understood as a kind of consumer, as a sort of vector for self-actualization. But, but, but I, that, that's what I see happening now. There was a, a notor now notorious essay in, that came out in the New Yorker recently about a public philosopher at you know, an American university, Agnes Callard. Who, who divorced one husband um, on pretty much on the, on, at the drop of a hat I mean, over the course mm. of about three weeks because she fell in love with one of her grad students and subsequently moved her new husband in some a year or so later, having had a child with this, this new man. She moved him and the child back in with her ex-husband and the two children she'd left behind with him. Um, and then there's, there's this long 
extremely long think piece about this this very unusual woman and their very unusual family setup. Um, the upshot of all of it is that she seems she's she's approaching marriage and she's approaching the idea of relationships as though it's all about what it does for me and what it makes yes. me as a person. Yeah. And you know what what does it yeah. what does it bring to me? You know, and underpinning that is this completely unexamined assumption that our default condition is always to be alone and that in fact it's desirable to to re reattain a condition where we can be absolutely alone if if necessary mm. and my and my argument is that that's that's fundamentally predicated on an abundance of resources and i don't think that we can be confident enough that that's that material substrate will continue to obtain for enough women for us to be promoting that as a way of approaching what relationships are and what and how we and how we inhabit them i mean if i'm if i'm right um again this is this is really the old lefty and the old um anti-capitalist in me talking but i've never quite been able to shake the, the an, an apocalyptic feeling and nothing which has happened really since 2016 has done anything to dis to to to, to, to assuage my yeah. my feelings that in <laughs> that really, really we are sort of scraping the barrel of what progress is able to afford us, you know, in a, in a great many wider um, fields than, than just that of feminism. You know, I feel like we're, we're reaching diminishing returns on consumer capitalism. I mean, we're diminishing returns in terms of the, I mean, you, 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 look, at, you look at fracking and, and the, the, amount of, mm. the, the amount of energy that goes in for the amount of energy that comes out. It feels as though we're, we're, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel on a number of fronts. Yes. And I'm I'm far from uncomplicatedly a sort of Greta Thunbergite, but I do wonder sometimes how much longer we can keep running out over thin air. Um, and, and again, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but what if I'm right? Then, if I'm right, and if my hunch is right, and in really we this isn't going to continue, then sooner or later, material abundance for everybody is going to come to an end. And to my eye, that's already happened for the working classes. That that was what mm. happened under Thatcher and Reagan. And it's it's coming for the lower middle classes now. You know everything which happened under COVID was looked to me whatever the whatever the stated intention was like a methodical asset stripping of the petty bourgeoisie in favour of an enormous upward transfer of wealth so that so that progress and abundance mm. can continue for the people at the top just for a little bit longer mm. just at the expense of immiserating yet another yet yet another rung at the bottom of the social ladder and and I think well you know if this is right. <laughs> yeah. I will. I will get back to marriage and the importance of marriage in this context. But really, if you're, if you're, if if the world is poorer and more dangerous and more unpredictable, and you're a woman and you want to have kids, you'd be mad to try and go it alone. Um, you would be, you know, if if the world gets more violent, do you really want to be navigating it without a big strong guy who's got your back? I mean, that sounds like an. From the point of view of a world of abundance, that sounds like an incredibly regressive thing to say. But imagine, imagine not believing that in a world which is full of unpredictable, violent people who don't play by the rules. Ima imagine not having a husband in that world. You know, it's a living nightmare. And yeah, I mean, this is this is really um, th th these are these are sort of precepts that these are feminist precepts for a for a dystopia that we don't have yet. But I, I worry about I worry about the world my daughter's going to grow up mm. into. And I think just in case, you know, maybe we should be thinking a little bit differently about how we form relationships and what we think they're for. And, and to me, what, what that is, is something like a post-romantic covenant mm. that says actually what we're doing together 
is, you know, this, this isn't about what you are to me as a, as a vector for self-actualization. This is about what we are to one another as the foundation for life in common, you know. Do you think, Mary, then, that you're talking about the pill and maybe rejecting it, um, talking about looking at marriage in a different way. People have got to find meaning themselves, whereas once it was maybe supplied. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if I think of the way that my parents got married, yes, they loved each other, I assume, but um, they didn't expect, you know, there was no such thing as soulmates and things mm -hmm. like that. They didn't kind of expect any great thing, but something else was happening. It wasn't just that they, economically, they needed to be together. I mean, that, that that's too simplistic. It was sort of the idea that somehow this is more of a stable way to live. This is just what you do. Yeah. I think it's exceptionally difficult now. I mean, I, I, from, I hear from so many people younger than me that it's trying to, trying to create anything stable at all mm. is just it's exceptionally difficult now um, because it, it feels as though absolutely everything has been liquefied in the name of freedom and progress and choice and you know, all of us constructing the life that we want. Mm. But, but, but that really it takes a phenomenal effort of will to, to, to get anything to stick at all under those circumstances. And I suppose if there's a, if there's a case to be made for post-romantic marriage on that front, it's that once you've made the decision, you don't have to keep thinking about it. Yeah. And there's something, I mean, I, I, I do my very best um, because, I, because I see my marriage, my own marriage, as a covenant and as something that doesn't just belong to me. I do my very best not to talk about the, it, it's a black box as far as my public life is concerned, and I, I like to keep it that way. But there's something very freeing. Is all, all I'll say is there's something very freeing about having made that decision, and then it's just made. And there's a great deal that can happen within that, which as a space of safety, which just takes it. It it makes the world less lonely. It makes the world less stark. It makes the world feel less. You don't have to create yourself every second of the of every day. You don't have to make the, every decision from first principles at the start of every day. And there's and from the point of you know from a sort of radically liquid, you know what Zygmunt Bauman called liquid modernity. This kind of mm. I'm, I'm supposed to craft myself for an audience of for an audience on TikTok every day. Yes. It it just takes it, to, it it creates a space where that just isn't true, and it's a space of rest and a space of respite, which I find phenomenally freeing. I'm immensely grateful for. Of course, the uh, you could say that the way that you are describing that um, could almost be born of religious belief. Mm -hmm. But I, I sort of am assuming that you're putting forward a non-religious basically a non-religious version of, of that. Well, like the, like the famous sticker people put in their offices, you don't have to be crazy to work here, but it helps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you, you don't have to be a person of faith yeah, yeah. To, to, to take that approach to marriage. I think it definitely helps, but it, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not necessary. I think you, it's, it's, perfectly, it, it's certainly not beyond the wit of man to treat, to treat your marriage as something absolute, as a covenant in that way. Um, without w without having the having that that structure of religious faith, but again, I mean, <laughs> on the other hand, you might say, well, why would you? You know, mm -hmm. why why make life difficult for you? Why re why reinvent the wheel? And that, I mean, that's a that's a whole different discussion. But you know, you don't have to be crazy to work here, but it helps. You uh, those those are some of the thing the, the 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 ideas that you put forward. But also, you do say, I think this, the phrase you use is "let men be." Yes. 
right? So that that's, that takes us, that's the third one, mm -hmm. isn't it? Let men be. Let men be. Well, I mean, this, this was really born out of my um, asking the question, if, if I'm encouraging women to get married, then that sort of assumes that there's anybody that they would like to be married to. And one of the, one of the questions that gets asked a great deal is, where have all the good men gone? And, and this was quite, I found this quite a challenging chapter to write because I feel that there are some ways, there are some, you know, in, in answering that question, I, it was necessary to reckon with some of the undercounted costs of women's emancipation. Not least that one of the costs of women's entry into public life was uh, the attrition of all male spaces, mm. which it's one, it's one thing to attenuate those places, say, for example, all the all male gentlemen's clubs where, you know, deals were done and, um, and, and countries were bought and sold or whatever. It's, it's one thing to say, well, these, these must be made co-ed. And it's another thing altogether to, to do that again at the other end of the social scale and to say, well, working class men no, are no longer, you know, are no longer free to, or, or even really encouraged to have any space amongst themselves. Um, as distinct from, as as separate from, from their their wives or sisters or female friends, and 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 again, I think that this is this is an undercounted cost of the of elite women's emancipation. Mm -hmm. That in a sense, rules have been rolled out which have had unintended effect, an, an unintended um, second or even third order effect in in reducing the space available for single sex male sociality. Um, in ways which I think have been disproportionately um, disproportionately felt by working class men, mm. um, and my and following from that, I've suggested that perhaps perhaps one thing that women might consider in the interests of in the interests of giving men space to to form one another, and because really it's. It's plain to me. Um, it's plain to me that men, men are not formed by women. Um, men are formed by older men. I mean, this <laughs> I could I could throw social studies at you, but this this is just clear to me from observation. Yes. yes. That if you want, if you, you, men men don't learn manners from men don't learn manners from they don't learn how to they learn how to behave from other men whom they admire, mm. and this is this is just clear. And if you and if you take those places away, mm. then then the, over time, the net effect will be um, an attrition of all of those tutel beneficial tutelary yes. um, effects of male socialization of other men, and particularly of respected mentorship by older men of young men. And I think we, we can all, we, the, the, the headlines of gang violence in outer London you know, speak to one of, the, one of the ways in which that's playing out. Um, but actually, sorry, I was about to, when I was interrupting that, on that very point, when I used to be in the London Assembly, we had to, I was on the Crime Committee, we used to do an awful lot of um, scrutinising on these issues, gang, gang violence, knife crime. And I remember one lady there, that she was a mother, um, she was a working class mother actually, and she said um, she, that there was father was absent, but she sort of said, I cannot make my son into a man you know, he needs a father for that. But interestingly, the policy drivers at the same session, who were white, middle-class women mostly, were saying there's no evidence this is needed at all. Um, 
no evidence that she uses it. And yet here was the woman who had boys who on the right front line. Who was right at the coalface. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and if the only older, respected older males who are there to set an example are the ones who are handing them the knife and saying, go and do this and I will treat you with more respect, then what are they going to do? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, we all, and everybody in London lives with the consequence of that, not least the poor children who are, who are injured or killed uh, as a consequence of the violence which follows from that. Yeah. I mean, and this is, the, I've, I've, not, I've not talked a great deal about father, I've not talked at all about fatherlessness or knife crime in, in the book, but I've, I've focused much more on, well, in, in, in gentler contexts, really just on suggesting that we might take a step back and allow just allow a bit more space for men to form one another and and i've not been very prescriptive on what form that might take but i mean really at the at the most mundane level it's just a plea for sheds and and for for, for granting a bit of respect and, and and a bit of space for the existence of sheds and for the existence of forms of male socializing which are just opaque yeah, to women yeah. because those exist <laughs> One example I gave recently, because I was I, I noticed it recently. I, I run a lot in my local area, and often there's a particular field that I'll run through, which is popular with um, metal detectorists. Oh, right. Um, and sometimes you'll see four or five of them out, and you know, over the over the course of ten or fifteen acres, and they're you know they're they're well out of shouting distance of one another, and they're always men, detectoring, detectorizing, doing doing their thing. And, and, and it struck me the other day as I was running through this field with, with four or five that these men are socializing. They're doing it on a frequency which is completely un unavailable to me, um, but they're socializing. <laughs> and, there's, and, and there are there are plenty of other, there are countless other frequencies like that which just make no sense to me, but which are very much more typically male than they are female. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the row of anglers along a river is, an, is another example of the same thing. You know, there are, I'm sure you can think of others. And, there are, and those are the spaces which have been attenuated, partly as a consequence of this default assumption that every field of social activity should be co-ed. And, 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 and when I say let men be, I don't mean we should make them all go and sit in a room and talk about their feelings. I think we should absolutely not do that. No. We should let them go and sit on a riverside and not talk about their feelings, <laughs> if that's what works for them. And <laughs> can, can we not just let them be a bit? Mary, look, thank you so much. I mean, for, I mean it's an incredibly rich uh, book in, uh, in ideas. And, and, you know, you've done a great job of actually giving us a, skimming across the surface now with it. Um, now, the book is out, isn't it? It's published, um, yes. Um, we, we have members, um, sort of, and we provide them with exclusive content. So I was just wondering, would you mind just answering a couple more questions when we sign off here for them? Um, but in the meantime, uh, thank you very, very much. Um, here we go. Mary Harrington, Feminism Against Progress. And it's available now and in, in America, I think, at the end of the month. At the end of April, 25th of April, it's published in the United States, Regnery. Um, but here you can get it right now. I, I would really recommend it. Thank you very much. Um, that's it for this week. We shall see you next time. Thank you. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it 
without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you. Thank you.